Hello and welcome back to the Apprentice One to One podcast. It is me again, Mark, and we've got three people with us this week. The two regular hosts in Craig and Richard and Matt, who was on the last podcast with me, is here again for another chat tonight. Thanks very much, gents, for joining me. How are you, first of all, Craig? Yeah, good. It's been a, a busy few weeks, but settling down now and all nice and ready to go again. You? Yeah, not too bad. Busy as ever. Um, just seems to be keep getting to be more busy every single day in the day job. I'm sure you're seeing that as well with your guys from the sounds of it, which is both good and bad. That now you feel about that. Yeah, I mean it's it's strange, isn't it? We're supposed to be in this recession, and I'm sure it's somewhere somewhere online. But we've never been busier. We've never had more guys on. We've never had more jobs going. It just seems to be growing and growing every day, which is a nice problem to have. But yeah, as you say, good labour and skills and the right jobs is always a tricky navigation, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And you must have that tenfold because I think you've got more than 20 people. Have you now? How many guys or girls have you got out on the tools? I think we're probably about 40 or 50. Wow. So that's quite a lot of people to keep busy with work anyway, isn't it? So <laughs> fair play yeah. to, to, to you and your, your employer. How are you this evening, Richard? Very well, thanks, mate. Very well. Refreshed after um, a nice little break in the sunshine for a week or two. And um, yeah, back on it. Lots going on uh, in the uh, other side of the dark side of the regs and things. So lots of things happening. Quite a few investigations going on ourselves um, in terms of RCD types and um, fires created by solar PV. So there's quite a lot of work to do there and continuously updating our best practice guides so we've just finished number two um new images and we've been recording some videos today with me and my colleague dave to try and further expand upon some of the more technical requirements of the regs but also some of the hsc stuff so we've been doing some stuff on gs38 today um nice. just to try and you know expand upon who it's for what it's for and cross-reference that against various bits of equipment, so various uh, voltage indicators, test leads, probes, clips, all that, to try and you know bring it out of a document and make it make sense to people. So hopefully it will be of some use to uh, sparks, apprentices, learners, all that type of stuff. Um, I'm sure it will be, mate. And we'll maybe dig into yeah. that a bit on this podcast, actually, a bit about what yeah. you're getting up to at Electrical Safety First. Yeah. But before we get to, to that, how, how are you, Matt? You're uh, back again this week. You keeping well, mate? I am, yeah, really good. Thanks, Mark. Um, still loving the the solar job that you and you and the boys did for us. So when we get a bit of sun, that's good. Um, but I've actually I managed to get out on the tools for once. So I, after the last podcast, someone got hold of me and said, "Do you fancy a bit of experience?" I've been out doing a bit with them, which is really nice and really different. Awesome. So you've had a bit of a chance to go out and and put the stuff you've been learning to practice. Is yeah. this something you're going to be doing regularly or is it a one-off little bit of a, a job you've got to go and do or what's the situation? No, it is. It's, it's looking regular. So whenever I've got some spare time, um, he said he can try and get me some some more experience and keep chipping away at it. So hopefully, you know, more experience makes it, you know, better when everything else comes up. Oh, that's fantastic. And it, it kind of fits in with an outline theme I had for tonight's discussion. Obviously, we're getting towards September. People are going to go back onto their apprenticeship and into training. So it was to kind of give an overview of what to expect for anyone who is on that path towards it. But I wanted to have a chat about your circumstances, Matt, because you'd asked a question kind of offline to me about costs around studying to be an adult learner. So Craig and, and Richard are the ideal people to pitch that question to, so they might be able to help with that. We can have a little delve into Richard's work with Electrical Safety First. For those of you who don't know, he is working in that organisation now very, very hard and speak a little bit maybe about what Craig's up to with some of his projects and also an exciting achievement he has made of his own and he's been very modest about that I'd like to talk about here on the podcast. So we'll go to that first, Craig. What have you been up to in your technical world of qualifications? Just been working, mate. You know how it is. I... You can't not tell everybody, having having <laughs> gone through the design process that we've all been sharing, and we're going to mention that again later on in this podcast because we have got another design episode coming, and not tell us what you've actually managed to do in your private training world. No, I got a nice, you know, I I got a nice successful outcome from my level four design, so that was good for the certificate element. Just got to sort all the project and everything out now, and then that can be all nicely done and put away. So 
yeah, it was good. It was a lot of studying and a lot of hard work. And I can see why people find it a struggle. But as we've sort of mentioned a few times and as people have suggested on here before, it is basically a three-hour regs exam that if you can kind of navigate your way through the regs and justify what I would say you're trying to do, then, you know, you've got a good point. And one of the things you've done this time, which I found really interesting, was for the first time ever, um, I believe, they published the past merit and distinction marks in the chief examiner's report. So the past mark was surprisingly only 50% to get a pass on the exam, which I don't know, old wives' tales or whatever you want to call it, I always assumed it would have been an awful lot more than the yeah, 50 same, marks. Same. What I don't know is whether that changes paper to paper, whether that's always been 50%, whether that's something they've done for the first time this time. But yeah, it was 50% of the marks got you a pass and then I think it was something like 60-odd was a merit and 70 or something or 80 was a distinction. I can't remember, but it was the first time I'd seen them publish those results and I've been through most of the previous chief examiner reports um, before taking my exam, so that was surprising. Yeah, yeah, I was happy to get a positive outcome from it. I bet, I bet you was. There's a lot of stress and worry comes alongside any exam and when you've got to sit <laughs> waiting, what was it, eight, ten weeks till you got your results? It was about 10 weeks, I think, yeah. I think it's like torture, me, I isn't it? It's a long old time. Well, yeah. Someone told me, um, a professional friend of mine told me that um, it gets released the same day the examiner's report goes on the website is when you know that the centre have got your exam results. So every day from sort of six weeks onwards, you're kind of checking the City and Guild's website because the centres, I don't get believe, get told when the results are released either. So it's kind of just if they're checking, so you're kind of just hoping that, or I was hoping that I would find it in time to then alert them to do it. And I did in the end, I actually was the one that contacted my centre and said, the results are up. Um, can you tell me what I got? And, but yeah, it's painfully sort of not wanting to think about it and saying, well, I've just, I've done the best I can and it is what it is. But equally, you are thinking about it every day for like the eight weeks or ten weeks it takes to get the result out. So it was nice when it was nice when I got the result. And I think talking to a few other instructors from different centres, not just from my centre, I think people generally had a higher amount of students pass this exam than what they've maybe seen previously, which is why I don't know if they've maybe got the pass mark down or something perhaps because centres that are normally having one or two people pass, I believe we're getting like six or seven or eight people pass this time on this exam. And but it is just, you know, it's applying it, isn't it? So I I was literally writing and I'm sure Richard will back me up on this one, but I was literally writing to the last minute of the exam, putting like my last word down on the paper and didn't really have time to go back and check. So just kinda of had to hope that what you'd answered was relevant. And I had I had an interesting question, which we'll maybe look at in a few weeks, about ring mains um, and testing the different points at sockets, expected results, which I know the way I've always done it, but I'm also aware in the new guidance note 3, they've put out a new set of formulas in the IET, put out a new article about So you spend half your time going, well, did I use the correct version or did I not? Second guessing. <laughs> it's like mad, isn't it? <laughs> It's good that you got through it. I'm pleased for you. I know you worked really hard at that. And now, from the sounds of it, you just got to get the project over the line and hand all that over. What what an achievement, yes. what an achievement Craig. You know, a lot of hard work and a lot of conversation back and forth. Uh, and as you've quite rightly said, it's about applying the knowledge, isn't it? Um, you know, the guidance is in the is in the brand book, but it's how you apply that uh, to real life design and situations, and to be able to expand upon it and explain it and describe which is what it calls for that's why it's level four uh you do need a good working knowledge of the book and that's difficult but don't underestimate your achievement there absolutely brilliant mate really really good and i think they do moderate pass rates on exams certainly city and guilds do and they you know they may adjust the marks depending upon you know when they've moderated it you know on pass rates and stuff like that but doesn't matter, you know, what you've done there is, is a massive achievement and uh, you'll always have that 
for the rest of your career, which is great. Another one of those bits of paper, but it's how you applied it and get the project over line, mate. Absolutely brilliant. Very good. And I appreciate that, James. Thank you. It's that level four qualification, isn't it? It's a really high standard and it should be difficult to attain. And they do, I know exams from speaking to people who've done the two, three, nines ones lately. I think they do the same sort of moderation on that based on the paper that's put out. Depends on the marks coming back as to what's a pass and what's not. It's not a set percentage. So maybe the same kind of logic's following suit on the two, three, nine, six, possibly. Matt, in terms of your question that you asked off offline, what's your actual situation? I did ask ask Craig and Richard, but we wasn't entirely sure what your circumstances were. So, how can we help? Um, so it's kind of about. I think the question I was talking to you was about funding, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and about how that would affect um, a company funding an apprenticeship. Whether it's different if the apprentice is sixteen. To 24 24 to 30 or you know over that i mean i'm i'm clearly only just over 16 i'd never have guessed i never guessed it's, it's that effect now in, in my understanding if it's a really big company they've got a levy that makes no difference they just paid levy funding and for whatever they want for whoever they want because i've done that with other people in other, in other jobs but it's that thing of you know if you're going into a, a medium one-man sole trader or you know a couple of sparks and they want to take on an apprentice is there a difference in the funding um can it still come through like esfa be funded by the government and so on being that i am as old as i am so my i never spent a lot of time working in funding i was always on the teaching side rather than the mis funding side but ironically, I was doing a bit of research recently because I was looking at degree apprenticeships because I'm deciding whether I want to go on and do like a engineering degree or a HNC, HND. And my worst understanding from having looked roughly was that, yes, as you say, every companies, if they're over, what is it, a £3 million wage bill, then they pay tax offsets or something against the levy. But there was a couple of other scenarios where based on the apprenticeship and based on the size of the company and based on the wage bill where they'd have to pay a percentage contribution towards it, but say like 90 or 95% of the apprenticeship was funded and they had to pay like a 5% kind of fee for you to go and do it. Um, and that was sort of, as far as I'm aware, that was the main one. There was some scenarios where they wouldn't have to pay anything but I think, to be honest, to get the exact answer to the question you're looking for would be a case of the employer going and meeting with the college and talking about your circumstances and their circumstances. Because from what I do know of funding, is is all based on personal situations. I think the only main difference between you doing an apprenticeship and a 16-year-old doing an apprenticeship, for example, um, from your point of view, is that they have to pay you a slightly different hourly rate to do that because you're over the age of 18 or 21 I can't remember which one it is um, but in the most part I think there is financial options out there to support it and not but if the apprenticeship isn't an option from sort of an employed point of view with an employer I'm just trying to think as I was leaving education they were bringing out a new set of qualifications that you could get an advanced learner loan for, which was level three, which then meant you could do it. And I think the either the 2357 or the 5357 was an option where you could take out the advanced learner loan for whatever the government set the fee at. Let's say they set it at £4,000, for example. And that would cover the cost of your training whilst you were then out sort of gaining experience. And... um the way those advanced learner loans work, and again, don't quote me on figures because it's been a long time, but say you were earning £21,000 a year, then I think you pay something like 5% of the money that you borrowed back. Then as your wages increase, then your um, contribution increases. So it worked in the same format as a university loan. But I think the best way to get your answer would be to take the employer and the college, or even just phone them up. They all have MIS departments. They're all enrolling now. They're all doing that. And literally remember these days, the 24th of August, there's always GCSE day and returning back to education and the whole world swarms back in. So um, 
I would have have that conversation with the employer in the college and they'd be able to give you exact information on your circumstance. But the the apprenticeship websites do talk about adult funding and they do talk about ways to get funding for that. So there is avenues. I just don't know the ins and outs of exactly what they all are. Yeah. And they, they do tend to change the goalposts, don't they? I remember, again, not, not you know heavily involved with the funding side of things, but... Um... There, there will be some funding available, but I've seen recently in, in some of the colleges and down the country, there's particular funding, especially for some of the greener technology courses that managed to get funding from somewhere or whatever. So there are pockets of funding, but again, you know, they do change the goalposts quite regularly. So a local college or a training provider, they'll be able to tell you exactly, you know, if you qualify for it or you don't, that's probably the best place to go. But they do move the goalposts around, but there'll be something there, I've no doubt for sure. Brilliant. Yeah, because I, I have put in for a, an advanced learn loan. Strange you should mention it, Craig, that I've put one in for one for September because, you know, if I don't get anything, if there's nothing out there, I want to get on on my level three. So I've, I've, in, I've signed up for that now. So hopefully that will start in weeks or something like that one. Um, but if I can sneak in another quick question around that sort of thing, and that is um, I'm not sure whether I could do and then the NVQ, is it the two, three, five, seven, alongside the level three? Or do you have to have your level three before you do your portfolio? Because it seems like the portfolio is mostly installation stuff. So it's mostly level two anyway. And it's only towards the end of it when you get into that kind of the, the testing side of it. So could I bump up the, the advanced learner loan and see if the college would let me privately do the NVQ and the level three and if i can keep getting experience with this one chap and maybe some other people get that portfolio built at the same time yeah i think the last time i was looking at um just before i was leaving education one of the nvq options was an advanced learner loan option so it might be that you just need to change your qualification type but as far as i'm aware the level two and the level three you do in college are just the units with inside the NVQ. And there was nothing that says when you can and can't do the NVQ. So when I do, I still do some teaching at a private training provider sort of a couple of weekends a month. And the minute we enter level three, I recommend all of them go and do the NVQ because I think the only rule around the NVQ that I'm aware of is that your evidence has to be within six months of enrolling. So if you're doing loads of install work now, um but you don't enroll in it for two years' time, all the work you're doing now doesn't actually count towards your NVQ. So as far as I'm aware, there is no reason why you shouldn't be, and I often recommend to anybody that you should be doing your Level 3 NVQ alongside your Level 3 because your Level 3 is just a theory unit's already inside your NVQ to which you are going to be undertaking anyway. And if you look on City and Girls' website on the... I think it's on the 5357 page, but I'll find it and share it with Mark. There's a PDF document under additional documents, I think it is, that tells you if you've got your level two, these are the units that takes out of your NVQ for you. If you've got your level two and your level three, these are the units you don't have to do for your NVQ. So there's lots of different options as to what you'll already be able to tick off of your NVQ. Um, but yeah, people view them as separate, but they're not. They're kind of one complete Part. So the apprenticeship is effectively your level two and three in college and then the on-site NVQ part. You're following the same route if you do the technical certificates bits in college, you're just not on site four days a week, but then you still have to go and do the NVQ for like 90% of the evidence in the exams are exactly the same whether you do it full-time in college plus an NVQ or whether you do it on the apprenticeship plus an NVQ. So as far as I'm aware, but Richard done more apprenticeships than me, but as far as I'm aware... There's no reason why you couldn't be. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the 5357, you've obviously got knowledge units and performance units. The knowledge units are what are effectively sorted in college, and then your performance units are effectively what's done on site. But, of course, they supplement each other and complement each other. So, I don't know, for instance, I don't know, you... Your installation design unit will talk about different wiring systems and different types of cable and all that type of stuff, which is great. If you can see that in a book, fabulous, but it, it, it doesn't give you what it actually is. But if you're on site and you're talking about SVA in the classroom and you're actually 
dealing with it and practicing it and putting it in, it kind of they supplement each other and you know complement each other. So as Craig said, really, you you want to try and do your MVQ at the same time as your theory, and they'll kind of help you build knowledge and you know retain knowledge, and then you can at least say, oh, I haven't done that on site, but I kind of seen it in the book, but maybe we'll apply that in the future. You know, it could be anything from tray to SWA to absolutely anything, couldn't it, at the end of the day? But certainly, you're going to have certain units, knowledge units to complete and performance units, but they're kind of hand in hand. So you might have a health and safety unit knowledge-wise, but equally you'll have a performance unit that you'll have to achieve certain criteria for that health and safety unit. They kind of complement each other. And that carries forward throughout all the different units in science. And, well, science is probably the exception, but you know, you're organising and planning where you have to, you know, produce um, delivery notes and variation orders and, you know, um, all sorts of stuff, your, your planners and all that jazz, um, to wiring systems, to inspection, testing, fault finding, obviously regs again, uh, design is the big one. Um, so there's certain units on knowledge and certain units on performance, but if you can always supplement the knowledge with real life working, that's the best way, in my opinion, to, to build knowledge and retain knowledge, if you can, you know, so. I'd, I'd echo what the guys have said, um, Matt. They know far more about this than I do, but just pulling back to your question about the funding, I know as an employer with the apprentices that we've got, I think we have to contribute, it's about £300 a year for each one towards their training. We're not levy payers. I wish we were, but we're not, so we don't have to worry about that aspect. Um and I would assume it's the same regardless of your age. I thought you was asking a question about kind of funding, paying it for it yourself. Um, and the same as what Craig and Richard have, have said, there is some funding that is there, but I think it's a bit difficult to get in the electrical industry. I know there was a lot of talk from government about opening it up to trades and other construction industries alongside university degrees and stuff and being able to access all that money. But, you know, whether that actually is happening or not, I don't know. So I hope that's answered some of your questions a little bit. Yeah, no, it's been really good. Um, I think the, the personal funding bit was the fact that if, if I was over a certain age, are they going to tell the employer that I've got to pay the full, like, 20 grand of the apprenticeship cost or something? That was, I think, what I was slightly concerned on. Um, but I think the other thing, if, if you know, if the people out there that work for big companies do pay the levy, um, I don't know if everyone's aware that I think companies can pledge their levy if they haven't spent it. Yeah, so they it can. can give access to the smaller companies out there that, maybe struggle paying even though that little bit of 300 pound or whatever it is a year they can pledge that and they can pledge it for specific trades and apprenticeships so it might be something that people out there haven't thought of making it available for the smaller companies to support them being able to employ an apprenticeship through that levy pledge good shout i like that it's a good shout richard in terms of electrical safety first what good work have you been up to <sighs> well Lots of stuff going on currently. Um, I know the product team have just launched a, a huge report on uh, battery fires and thermal runaway. Um, we're trying to lobby, or they're trying to lobby the government to to get you know better um, legislation in place to try and prevent um, dodgy batteries and you know using fake charges or different charges with different incompatible batteries and stuff like that. There's been it's a lot on of e-scooters. One, there's been a campaign on e-scooters, hasn't there? Yeah, and stuff from electrical thing. safety first. Yeah, uh, and the, again, the product team kind of look look after that um, as well as uh, dodgy uh, equipment, you know, appliances, etc., being sold on various marketplaces which don't have the same uh, laws, really, that normal retailers do. You know, we've seen a lot of issues with that, so. They've been really busy, but obviously I'm on the installation side of things with my colleague Dave, and we've been trying to update some of our best practice guides. Uh, we've just, as I say, recently updated best practice guide two, which is all about safe isolation. Um, so we've included quite a lot of new images um, within the guide itself and added some additional information, technical information, but you know, these guides, and it's something that I've learned and I've used them myself in the past, quite regularly, is that they're not created overnight. They're created in agreement with a number of organisations that all contribute towards it. So, you know, everyone from NAPIT to NIC, Select, 
uh, ECA, EAL, Sitting Guilds, British Gas, Bema, HSC, um, you know, BSI. All of these organisations come together, and it's a, a forwards and backwards process of uh, getting everyone's comments, taking them on board, maybe adjusting the terminology slightly, adding stuff in, taking stuff out. So we can't produce one of these guides and make them available because they're all free um, without everyone's approval. So that does take a little bit of time, uh, a number of meetings, in order for us to to ensure that the information is, is best practice and everybody kind of agrees to it. So I've had quite a bit of um, involvement and quite enjoyed them, actually. Um, and we've got quite a few of them to update. We've got uh, Best Practice Guide 10, which is not out yet. It's, it's due out any, any time now. Uh, and that's all about uh, electrical safety standards in the private rented sector. So it's like a, a minimum specification that we've produced uh, for periodic inspection and testing uh, of fixed electrical installations in, in the PRS scheme. So it's really for landlords and tenants and also inspectors. And it gives people an idea of exactly what you should expect when somebody carries out an EICR. And, you know, as you know, Mark and Craig, uh, you would have seen many dodgy EICRs that aren't really worth the paper they're written on, etc. And the normal landlord or householder isn't going to have much of an idea what to expect and how long it should take and the cost and what's included, what's not included. And then, you know, on the back end of that, you may have an unsatisfactory report, which is, you know, got some, let's say, uh, unprofessional coding attached to it. And you can scare a lot of people into, you know, having your consumer unit replaced or even worse than that. So we tried to to bring something to the table again, all free to download, freely available to anyone. Again, all agreed with various organisations that it's best practice, you know. So it's been good to be working on those. Um, That's really good because as, a, as an installing electrician myself, having a, a document that Electrical Safety First have produced that's informative for landlords, tenants, you know, often you can be accused of sour grapes when you're saying that price of that EICI is ridiculous and you disagree with that report. But, you know, if there's a set guidance document there from some body, body in industry with all those organisations feeding into it, that is really useful to us um, and very helpful. So top job. Yeah, and a lot of information around, you know, limitations and extent, what's included, what's not included. You know, do I need to get somebody else to come and, you know, inspect and test that particular part of the installation? Solar PV being a prime example. You know, is the inspector sufficiently competent to be able to carry out this type of work, etc.? Uh, all the questions that kind of get asked that, you know, people are either afraid to ask or people just don't know. And again, it's been agreed with all of the organisations that contribute towards it. So, you know, NAPIC can't say, well, we don't agree with that because they're part of the process, which is good. And that's why it's freely readily available. Download it anytime you want. And it's there. So it's been good to work on that particular new one. But we've got some other ones uh, in the pipeline coming up, just having the time to get around to them. But we're trying to update the existing ones we've got as well. Um, is the, we do is get the plans of, to cover like solar and battery as best yeah, practice guides? Yeah. Yeah, there's all that that's that's coming forwards, uh, prosumerine and all that type of stuff. Um, so again, it's it's when you've got to build something from scratch, it takes a bit of time to put it together. Of course, it does. Yeah. But you know, with more knowledge and experience as well, we've got more to contribute towards it ourselves because my uh, colleague Dave has, has done a lot of solar PV work and battery storage over the years, whereas I haven't had as much experience as him. Um, but being part of Electrical Safety First, I'm able to go out with some of the area engineers from the NIC, which is nice to go to some of the big contractors. Equally with the ECA, we work quite closely with all of them. So it, it's, it's been really, really good. Um, we also deal with uh, inquiries, general inquiries that come through the website. And again, a lot of this is, is like a call for help from just ordinary people that have maybe had some electrical work done, they've had no certificate. Um, given to them or they've had an EICR done and it's not clear as to, uh, you know, what needs to be done. Is it safe? Is it not safe? Um, and then we get some quite technical ones as well, you know, around SPDs or AFDDs. Do I have to have them? Don't have to have them? So it's it's good because my brain's never, you know, it's always ticking and it's always finding information and we've got to be as clear as we can um, to give the correct information, you know. So a bit of that, a lot of that going on. 
also part of the RAG, which is the Wiring Regulations uh, Action Group, again, another part of our website, where questions get posed to us that there isn't a clear answer in the regs, if that kind of makes sense. So um, what happens is then a question gets posed and anyone can pose a question. We can as an organisation, ECA, NIC, NAPIC, anyone can do that. And then I call it all the great minds of the industry will join together and we'll have a discussion about it and, you know, either come to a conclusion as to what the answer is collectively and that will get published on our website. So when you look on the professional resources of our website and you go to the RAG, there's a section on new installations and also a section on periodic inspection and testing. And again, those answers have been agreed by everyone from the IET to the NIC to us, everyone. And it's a really great, useful tool. And a lot of people don't know it's actually there. But it's I really did not awesome. know that was there. So I'm going to check yeah. that out after this. Uh, um, Are you aware of that, Craig? Have you seen that before? Yeah. No. Very good. Um, no, I, posed, not. I posed the question because, again, a query came in and me and you had a conversation about it in relation to uh, isolation on the DC side of the inverter. And yes. Of course, regulations talks about there must be one, but it doesn't state where. And then you look at the code of practice to further expand upon 712, and that says it can be part of the inverter. So again, I put it into RAG because there isn't a clear answer in the regs at the moment. There may be something coming in Amendment 3, but at the moment it's, it's, it's clear that there must be one, but it's not clear as to where. And there was a general concern um, that it, was, it, it could be dangerous because there isn't one separate to the inverter, but, you know, at the moment, it's 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 quite okay to have one in the inverter. So I had to dig, get the information, go to the manufacturer. We had a conversation about it as well. Uh, and hopefully, we're going to have a further discussion in the next RAG meeting. Um, and hopefully, we can get that one over the line and it will get published. And that's best practice at the moment. But because it's, it's digital, we can change it or add to it. But a really, really useful part um, of the website, you know. So it's, it's been really good getting involved with that. Um, really, really good. And... We are planning an installation event in uh, April next year, which is good because I know that Electrical Safety First haven't attended things like LX and stuff like that for a number of years. So I'm quite excited to be to be part of that. But I think it's going to be at Savoy House in London, which is the IT's headquarters. That's going to be in April. So there's a lot Very of planning. Snazzy. There'll be some keynote speakers and some, I think, three key areas that we were talking about today, uh, one of them being EICRs. So there'll be a number of people representing um, landlords to contractors like yourself, to ourselves, to the NIC, you know, to IET. And I know there's a lot of work currently being looked at in Amendment 3, whether it gets in that or whether it goes to the 19th around the reports themselves, are they fit for purpose, the coding? You know, things are constantly evolving uh, and it's nice to be part of that process. We've also got... Need... Uh... Go on, Craig, yeah. dive in. You're actually going to ask a question. If you, if you need... Not a question, but if you need any help for those days, I believe that me, Mark, and Jamie all work good in the miniskirt to hand out bottles of water <laughs> if you need to drive anyone to the stand. <laughs> and then we've also got an EICR working group as well. Um, again, that's talking to um, the other organisations and landlords as well and finding out, you know, what are the problems out for landlords as well um, in terms of pricing and, the, you know, the quality of the reports themselves. Are they clear you know is the coding in accordance with our best practice guide for industry guidance etc so there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of areas um i'm also joining gas from uh, efix on some of his college connections as well because i'm keen to because i've been part of the, the you know the the uh, teaching and training side of things for a number of years i'm still keen to try and provide some support um for teaching, you know, uh, uh, apprentices and learners and stuff like that. So a lot of these best practice guides, I'm looking to break them down even further because there's quite a lot in some of these guides and just, you know, basically break them down into, into little bite-sized bits, a bit like pocket guides, but that kind of make sense. And with each, each of the little guides, we'll have QR code links to little videos. We've been recording some videos today, um, one on GS38, really looking at it. And basically, what does it mean and how does that relate to the equipment that we're going to be using or maybe using? Uh, and, you know, what are the consequences of not following a guidance note that's produced by HSC, etc. Um, so, you know, quite a bit going on. 
So yeah. So I've been Craig. What was you going to say, mate? Sorry. I was waiting. So I was waiting. I'm going to say, is there any plans for Electrical Safety First to do anything like a sort of a general consensus testing software, for example, or something that means it's like sort of based on the best practice guides is sort of an easy system that can be used for issuing certification and stuff, or is it kind of not going that way? Like I'm just constantly yeah, on as a preference of like NIC, NAPA, easy there, all the other ones that you get, but the the method is not always necessarily about being the easiest to use for the consumer along with the guides and didn't know if that's something that'll be potentially explored. Potentially and again you know, I know there's a lot of gaps in a lot of knowledge out in industry and a lot of issues. And there's certainly one with certification and reports where they haven't been filled in correctly or they've been done from the van or they just don't understand exactly what, what they're writing in. So I know we've got plans to work our way through each section, for instance, on an EIC or an EICR. Uh, and we're going to record some videos talking about, you know, what type of information should be inputted into this area etc and work our way through because the, you know a lot of people do need some help the inspection schedule is another one isn't it where everyone will just take everything and they don't and again it all comes back to following me around <laughs> but it, it all comes back to uh, a working knowledge of the regs doesn't it you know if it's verification if it's brand new you're verifying against the requirements of the regs simple as that if it's an existing installation you you're basically doing a check to ensure that it's still safe for continued use so, you know, it's, it's um, a difference between verifying something and checking something if it's still safe. You know, it's all about risk, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit like an MOT on your car, but an MOT on your car, they have a set criteria that they must check, and it's either a pass or a fail, and maybe you may get some advisories. With what, you know, with what we're looking at, it's an engineering judgment as to whether you believe it's immediately dangerous, potentially dangerous. It would benefit from in improvement by adding something or whether you can't really say and you need further time to further investigate so it, there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, and any way that we can try and provide some free guidance because everything we do is free and readily accessible it's got to be a good thing you know and the more engagement we have uh, out in wider industry and it's important that we still keep you know right on the cold face of things um, which is important um, it's it's got to be a good thing. So yeah, there's lots going on. Um, but yeah, but again, never... suggestions. How is there anything else we can do? You know. So I was going to say I'll never be able to find this out, but I'd be curious to see with the amendment two paperwork how many people actually split down the difference of the overcurrent part of the protective device mm -hmm. against the RCD part when it talks about an RCBO, for example, because. That seems to be a recurring theme I have to repeat on a fairly regular basis, especially in the training side of doing regs courses or 2391 courses and things, for example, and saying, yeah, but it's not a type A MCB for overcurrent, is it? It's a type A RCD, like, and just trying to explain that, oh, well, what's the overcurrent bit? It's 61009 still, and just keep going on around those same We'd never prove it, but I wonder how many certificates are still just saying it's an RCBO across the whole sheet. Yeah, for sure. And um, again, as I say, it's it's something we're definitely going to be breaking it down section by section, and you know, looking at a real installation or a protective device, do a little video on it, uh, and try and you know delve a little bit deeper to try and build some understanding there, and hopefully. If we do it in a way that is easy to understand and try and break the technical stuff down into simple language, it will be useful to someone, or, you know, and that, that's my goal, that's our goal, to try and get some clarity. And then hopefully people don't have to then, you know, ask for help because some people don't. Um, and it, you can just go on and download it, watch the video, you know, uh, and there's some, there's some good stuff out there. Um, and yeah, so it's it's good. sounds really interesting the stuff that you're up to there, and oh. you've not been helped out to be fair with the the naming of type A, B, F of these RCD technologies that are in overcurrent protected devices. Whoever thought of that should have maybe or not used the word type or use some different letters or numbers because matching yeah. up with the ones that are already used it's just confusing, isn't it? So that's a tricky one to it solve. Is. At that it opens yeah, the product standard for the devices, doesn't it? It's it's it really does, yeah. So you it's know, a tricky, that, that... it's a tricky, tricky one. I mean, I'd 
pull back to the the DC isolators, my view on that is always when the inverter's off the wall and you've got the strings sat there, if the yeah. isolator's in the inverter, where's your isolation in the fixed wiring system? So we would always fit them because my engineering view is this should be there. Yeah. But I do understand when you're dealing in the intricacies and technicalities of product standards and yeah. wiring regulation standards, it is difficult when you know, to apply it in the way it's intended. And you've also yeah. got the angle of MCS muddy in the waters as well with their own particular and, and peculiar standards with things because they're still demanding certain bits and pieces that aren't in the wiring regs or the product standards. So it's a difficult place to try and pitch a bit of knowledge around. So you're going to have your work out there, I would yeah. say. And with with EICRs, I think it's long overdue and there's kind of been a, a sort of a move towards it where they're separating out domestic EICRs from commercial and industrial. I know there's a yeah. drive from some places to get rid of the FI code and there's yeah. certain contractors who work in the industrial space who would be appalled at that. But then those people doing EICRs in domestic homes, usually you can come to a conclusion without needing to use FI. So yeah. it's making those forms more understandable for consumers at the end of the day. I think there should be a specific one for the domestic market because it's usually a, a layman who's going to be reading it with no electrical understanding of anything that's written inside it, and it kind of makes it pointless if they don't know what they're looking at. Whereas a commercial yeah. and industrial one is usually going to have somebody with a bit of electrical knowledge at least reviewing it or trying to price remedials against it, and it needs a bit more of that technical content within it. That's my own personal view on those two issues, yeah. if that helps you out in your work at all at Electric Safety First, Richard. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, when we when we launched Best Practice Guide 10, which which is, you know, the minimum specification that we're going to release again that should clear a lot of things up for landlords and uh, homeowners and things like that as to what to expect you know and now there's been a change in legislation for social housing will kind of come into play there as well um but you know as, as you said there is a lot of work that needs to be done um and you know people need somewhere to go to get the best information that they can um and the most up-to-date and technically correct information and you know, it's free and that's what we're there for. So it's been interesting. brilliant. Full yeah. credit to you that you're going on that journey, doing it with the videos and QR codes, getting more with the modern world as well. I think that's an important yeah. step and trying to pitch a bit of content towards students and learners. Definitely. It's amazing. So Definitely. good on it you. Will, it, it will kind of bring it to life. And it's, 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 it's having a book, but it's just a book, isn't it? But if there are links to, to codes within that book, to videos, then you can, you know, if you want to learn a bit more about it in a real life situation, you can, you know, we've recorded a, a number of videos at my house, just basically looking at the safe isolation procedure and the steps and the process, you know, you need to follow to, to be able to, to carry it out correctly, but that will help or refresh electricians' memories, but also help learners and apprentices that may be going for AM2 or undertaking their inspection and testing, you know, practical exam, uh, or just refreshing your memory. And if it's in a real life situation, it's it, it's going to make sense in my memory and my mind over the years the best videos were always the ones that had a little bit of a story yeah they might have been a bit tongue-in-cheek you know i've still got the original uh, nice ic safe isolation video with dave austin and tony cable because it, it kind of you know it was a little scenario in an office and he didn't let anybody know that he's got the power off didn't lock it off somebody went in the cupboard switched it back on you know and i used to use that all the time in in the teaching space and they're the ones that are a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it gets the information across in a simple way, and you can see the consequences of not doing something. So that's my aim, is to try and reproduce stuff like that, which is done very well in a lot of places. You know, Gas does a great job with things like that. Um, and just to try and help that and add additional stuff in, which is useful, hopefully. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. Craig, how are you getting on with the day job? If you've got 50 people out on site, how in the world are you managing to design enough electrical work for them to get on the wall if that's still what you're doing? I don't. I just let them chuck in. <laughs> <laughs> no, are, you still, are you still office-based designing stuff or are you out managing jobs? What are you actually doing at the minute? A bit of both, to be honest. So I've had a... 12-week project at a college which has been a summer fit out which finishes in the next two weeks so I've had to sort of project manage that one um, but yeah I've been busy with design on the other side as well because we are we are just pricing and designing constantly as well as having jobs sort of come to a close but luckily we've got um, we've had another QS join us which is helpful we've got you know three really good project managers that are 
looking after stuff on site for us. Um, and then we've got, so three of us, front-end pricing and designing now and three people out on site sort of managing the jobs and our foremans are all pretty spot on. But we've got a couple of bigger projects which are taking sort of a chunk of that workforce at any given time, which is coming through. So our, our big, or certainly the biggest project I've done and designed, which was... I think it's maybe broke the million pound electrically marked to us so as part of like a much bigger project and that's starting to come towards an end so it's nice to see that journey now of what was sat in an office looking at drawings quantifying it designing it you know it's been a whole new front end ACB from the HV transformer through to a main panel in the building all the way through to fitting out every bit of cable and mains throughout four floors of the building and designing that all back and um, now coming to the point where it's sort of second fixing and coming to handover and sort of producing all the paperwork and the, we'll call it the journey of conversations with the numerous consultants that have been involved in that job over the course of its time. And just that whole picture coming together has been nice. It was one of the first jobs I'd done for BES when I joined them as a company. One of my first designs, one of my first tenders with them, obviously supported with other guys in the office, but seeing that kind of come to a, a handover point, I think, in the next, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks, maybe seeing that all come together and you go, well, actually, there's a, a fully produced and designed fourth floor fit out with lots of knowledge learned and lots of games, um, not games, lots of um, experiences gained, sorry, about questions I was asked and things I understood um, and things I didn't understand which I really had to go and learn about and one of them being the ERA reference method which I think some people know about and some people don't. I certainly didn't before this project and it was a case of what on the face of it looked like shutting main roads and digging up streets and putting 300 mil cables and in parallels and main earths and actually being able to apply certain elements of things like ERA reference methods and the regs and getting to stay on existing cables and that's literally saving hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of roads being dug up and cables going in has been a journey and an experience. But, you know, a lot of our day-to-day -day projects are a fairly similar sort of process. We do a lot of office fit-out. That's the main bulk of what we do. So it's kind of, okay, we know a rough floor plan. We know what we wire our TVs in. We know what we wire our floor boxes in. We know when we're putting our track in. We know what our lighting control systems are. And we kind of get through a good cycle of that being our kind of main spine. And then we've got these nice other bigger projects just dropping off, especially when we go and do... We do a lot of American Air Force bases, for example, and we do a lot of private medical and dental clinics and we do a bit of um you know Sainsbury's Argos those sort of distribution centers and stuff so it's it's nice when you're looking at jobs which are potentially things like the whole of Sainsbury's at some point are going to go to electric vehicles and electric lorries and how do we then give them that sort of infrastructure and get to pick apart those nice bits of but it's all very staged and staggered in what we do as to what we need to put out. But yeah, I, I would say the busiest part of my day-to-day -day is the daily consulting conversations of, well, why do we need an SPD? Why can't I have that one that's 50 metres away? Why can't I have, like, on my own project, I've got building control in tomorrow, so you know that's going to kick back some sort of, like, your, your three-watt pin spot is not within the half a metre of the door that it should be giving. It's given four works instead of five. You know, it's just that day-to-day -day bit of battle. But, yeah, it's interesting, and I love it, and I wouldn't change it. It's what makes the day go round. It's great to hear a, a company that's come from quite small origins into the size it is now and, and thriving and succeeding. I think that's really good, and you're dead right. The consultants and the snaggers will come along and, and poke little holes in bits and pieces here and there just to to annoy everybody. They have to find something, don't they? And the worst ones are the quantity surveyors. Um, no, nothing better to say about those people. But, yeah, it's, it's fantastic, mate. I think you're doing great work, and it's lovely to see the company thriving and growing. So full credit to everybody at BES. Is that correct? Burgess yeah, yeah. Electrical yeah. Services. So go check them out. I think yeah, they're on Instagram. Anyone... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they are. They're everywhere. And if anybody wants to see our big project, and it's some of Mikey's videos, certainly one where we've done the cable splice and yeah, these drone flying around and stuff on some of our buildings. That's our, our nice big fit out that we're doing. It's been a huge learning journey for me anyway. I'm sure for others too, but definitely for me, it's been part of a much bigger project. I mean, to the extent it's all been real landscaped outside and stuff. It's, you know, we're putting in new streetlight, we're putting in bollards. It's, I'm putting in IP rated external emergency LED tape, which I can honestly say is a first for me to <laughs> be putting emergency external tape in to light up a window frame. Nice. Cool. Is that the main escape route from the building then? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some of those videos Mike's done. So that's residual current for anyone who doesn't know Mike Pages. And I'll tag a link over to his YouTube channel. I'm sure you've all seen it anywhere where you can go and check some of that out. So it is it is brilliant. Before we, we end this podcast, I wanted to get a quick overview from each of you for anyone who is kind of starting their apprenticeship um, and what to expect when they're going into college. Because for some people, they've not done it before, coming out of a school environment, um, what the kind of process might be. So just a really quick overview. We'll go around everyone, have a quick chat about that. And then Richard has got some homework for everyone ready for the design episode we're going to record next week or the week after whenever we do it. So we'll run through that scenario for anyone who's got this far into the podcast and just set out some homework for you. So we'll start with you, Richard. What would be your best tips for someone looking to get into college in September? So whether you are full-time or um, you've gone down your apprentice route, you've got to make an impression because I was always looking for somebody that stood out um, you know the enrolment process is always a little bit sticky the first few weeks, but you gotta you gotta turn up there. You gotta you know be on time. You gotta take everything you need, have the right attitude, and it's not all practical. You know there's gonna be some theory, so you gotta be expecting to to do the theory bit as well. But generally, certainly with full time courses, you you've got like a third theory and two thirds practical, because obviously you're not getting that experience. Whereas an apprenticeship. It's probably either going to be a day release or a, a block release. If you're a full-time learner, you've, you're going to have to do more because you're not out on site, so you're not seeing a lot of the stuff. You know, you don't have any experience of that. So you've got to get onto then, you know, your, your various YouTube channels, GSH Electrical and eFix and some of the other good stuff that's out there to try and supplement that. Uh, and just have the right attitude at end school, you know, um, you, you've got to turn up and, and be prepared to get along and you'll find that, you know, the girls and the lads that are in your group, you're probably going to be part of that group for the next year or more so if you move on to maybe a level three or something else. If it's part of an apprenticeship, you're probably looking two, three years being part of the same group. So you've got to help each other out because you've got to remember that not everyone is good at practical and similarly not everybody's good with the theory side. So you've got to, not everybody gets on with everyone, but you've got to try and, uh, you know, and evolve as a group and get on together and, and have the right attitude, turn up with the right stuff, be on time. If you've got homework to do or DPS, I used to call it, directed private study, you get it done and you've got to prove that, you know, you, you, you want to be an electrician at the end of the day. Uh, and if you've got an apprenticeship, make sure you do exactly what you need to do on site. If you haven't got one, you know, take photographs of your work that you carry out in the practical, aim for high marks in your theory, and then get your CV sent out, knock a few doors, try and get that apprenticeship because they're tough. But, you know, if you want to be a Sparks, you've got to be prepared to put the work in, you know. So I like it. Good tips. Advice, Good yeah. tips. Matt, what would you say for anyone you, uh, for anyone who doesn't know listening to this? Matt looks after the Facebook group. He's often giving help and support to apprentices in there. So what would be your tips for someone starting in September? Um, very similar to what Rich has just said, actually. Um, find out what you need to do before you go and have it ready. Um, if you can beg, borrow, steal, get out from the library, get some books, go onto Amazon. A lot of the books are available secondhand. Buy them, start reading them, get ahead of the game. Um, yeah, totally. GSH, Joe Robinson, eFix, all of that. They've just set up a new, uh, a new learning platform, which is really, really good. Get stuck into that. Um, if you haven't got an apprenticeship, if you're not going into work, really really try and find work experience and, and talking to the facebook group a lot of people are saying i've been applying for apprenticeships i've been applying for apprenticeships maybe think about actually applying for some work experience 
just ask someone, can I do a couple of hours a week? And if you're good and you show you're keen, it would be stupid for that company to not then think, actually, do you know what? This person really wants to be a spark. They're really good. Maybe next year when they've got the level two or they've got a year's worth of theory, we can look at going for an apprenticeship. I think a lot of people put off by, you know, someone just rocking up out of the blue going, give me an apprenticeship, ask for some work experience first. Because it'll, if nothing else, it'll tell you that the course is right for you, the job is right for you, because there'd be nothing worse than starting an apprenticeship with a four-year timeline on it, getting out on site in the first couple of weeks and going, I don't like this, this isn't for me. So be prepared, get ready. And then the last thing I would say to everybody going on any course is, whilst you are part of a group, this course and apprenticeship is for you. So if they're all messing about in the background and they're not paying any attention, be the one that stands out. Don't be a sheeple. Say to them, you know, fine, you do what you want, but this is for me. Get in there, do what you need to do, get it done when it needs to be done by. And for apprentices, the one thing that you've got to get stuck into is that off-the-job training. Get that done from day one, because otherwise in three and a half years' time, it will be driving you nuts trying to work out what you've been doing over those last three years. That's the most important thing for any apprenticeship, any apprentice is to get stuck into recording your off-the-job training. I like it. Good tips there, Matt. And Craig? Um, I'll do a bit of a negative spin then. Mine are... <laughs> no one's making you be there, so if you don't like it, don't go, because you'll just become a pain in your children's ass. Yeah. And <laughs> if you come out of an exam, and this is a massive bugbear of mine, and go, I was only one question away from passing. Yeah, but you were 41% wrong. Stop aiming for the, or oh, I get a 60% pass. And you're still 41% wrong if you were one question off. You're 25 questions wrong or whatever it may be. Working it on the other angle, like Richard said, do well in your exams. Want to gain that knowledge. And if you are an apprentice or you are gaining work experience, Ask the people on site around you. There is no point having that experience around you to not ask the question. Everyone's new on day one. Everybody's shy. Everybody's, you know, 16-ish, wanting to do something in life. That's why you've walked through the doors. Don't put being cool above getting yourself your chosen path because you'll regret it when you're 21. Yeah. I like it. Sound tips. I had a, a message. I think I shared it with you guys in, in the podcast chat we've got. Um, from someone who'd been and got a job through one of the posts we'd shared. I think it was yeah. shared into the Facebook group, actually, Matt, where they found it. And they actually drove to the employer to go and meet them and chat with them. Um, and making that extra effort made them be the person who got the job. They stood out. So it, those the kind of things do make a difference. So you do really have to make that effort. So, yeah, good luck to anyone who is starting on that journey. I'm going to share my screen now anyway. I'll try to figure out how to do it. And I think it's this one. Let's go. Uh, is that sharing? Can you see yeah. the Apprentice one-to-one -one, um, logo that Richard's put onto here? I can't see the screen myself, so hopefully you guys can. Yeah, so we've yeah. got this scenario that is um, an EV charge point. We're not going to run through it in great detail here. It's just to kind of outline it. I'm going to create a web page with all of these files on. And next week, we're going to try and organize more of a webinar-based podcast, maybe the week after, depending on how quickly I can get it all set up where at least 100 people, if we're lucky enough to get 100 people, can come and join in the chat while we run through this scenario live and you can input your ideas and maybe point out the places we go wrong because we're not perfect. We may get bits and pieces wrong along yeah. the way. Yeah. But just so you can have a quick look through there, we've got the um, EV charge point, uh, the Home 7 Plus with the looks of it from Simpsons and Pashers. Pash one. one. There's a, there is a link to their website because within this scenario you might need to have a look for some technical information because as designer, you've got to ensure that, you know, you're complying fully with the requirements or the general requirements of the regs, but we've also got to consider the additional requirements in 722. So there's a bit more, a little bit more in depth for this, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty good. I so like I, it. I like up. it. So when you're going onto the website to see this file, there'll be that link there as well, where you can go off and have a look at that to prepare yourself. I have to see if I can zoom across and, Look at the other one now. Can you see the home series one? Has that popped up? Yeah, so that's um, that's a, the technical documentation for this charger because this customer's bought this charger. And, of course, we're going to need to 
draw out the relevant information to help with the design. So it's quite a bit of information there, dimensions, etc. And I'll leave I'll leave people that's having a go. And also, we're going to be using some of this cable to uh, supply it, which is quite. Better be ultra, love it. So again, there's some information in that which we might need to look at as well. So that is going to be an interesting podcast. And I will create the web page. As I said, it'll be on the Apprentice One to One website, a link alongside this podcast for you to go off and take a look. I'll share some stuff on social media over the next week or so while we get organized with putting this on. I still need to figure out how Zoom works to host a webinar. So no guarantees that it will happen, but I'm pretty confident we're going to have a practice first. Anything anyone else would like to add before we end this one here this evening? All good. Thank you very much for your time, Matt, Richard, and Craig. I've loved chatting. It's been great to hear about your stuff you've got going on Electric Safety First. Yeah. Matt's opportunity out with his employer, which is amazing. So that's brilliant as well. And Craig smashing it in the day job and not just passing his 2396. Yeah. He actually got a distinction. He's too modest to say so himself. So I'm going to say it right now at the end. If anyone's got any questions or comments in around this podcast, please do drop them in below. We love the engagement with all of that. And until the next time, we'll see you then. Cheers, Alex.